Welcome. This is season three of The Daily Market, where we've decided to do something a little special. Earlier this year, startup junkie and marketplace master Ty Wolf-Jones, hey Ty, approached me and pitched us the idea of instead of interviewing founders and marketers, why don't we dive into the world of marketplaces, the VH1 behind the music of marketplaces, or what is the making of the sausage of a marketplace? Ty could bring the operations point of view, and I could bring the marketing point of view, and we could make some marketplace magic, or maybe a little more like Marketplace Mayhem. So join us for the series where we've spoken to over a dozen marketplace leaders and pioneers from Uber, Convoy, Bellhop, DoorDash, Rover, but also some rising stars and marketplaces from multiple countries, venture capitalists, and more. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Marketplace Mayhem listeners, who is Greg Gottesman? Greg is the co-founder and managing director of Pioneer Square Labs, former managing director at Madrona Venture Labs, and co-founder of Rover, the biggest pet-sitting marketplace in the nation. Greg has spent his entire life authoring his journey. At 22, he published a book that became the survival manifesto for the 1980s college student, which has seven editions, mind you. At 24, he became a lawyer, which he soon left so he could start working in business, and has been an investor in venture capital ever since. Greg has plenty of noteworthy accomplishments, pretty much too long for this intro, including a TED Talk, getting both an MBA and JD from Harvard, and his cousin being Fred Savage. Yes, for reals. This conversation was remarkable. I can't find a better word for it. Greg is super generous and a well of knowledge of not only marketplaces, but startups in general. Also, he's a gifted storyteller, but that makes sense, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Greg has been doing this in the Pacific Northwest, powering the startup uh, world here for a very long time and has seen uh, many different types of markets and market places. But, you know, the types of startups that have come out of uh, of the world these last 10, 15 years, obviously very heavily invested building startups. And now at a startup studio, getting to be, you know, the the idea generator, the the original operator, et cetera, many, many different of uh, ideas that, that they, he has all the time. Um, the guy is just truly a wealth of knowledge. So join us. This is a great conversation. Um, we get to dive deep into what spurred Greg's entrepreneurial journey, the genesis of Pioneer Square Labs, and a little bit more about that. How to build a marketplace from scratch. Um, he's got some of the best tips and tricks out there of building a business um, that we've heard this entire time. How to obsess over marketplace dynamics, the 80-20 rule for marketing funnels, Killing great ideas, uh, which is important, and starting with one and what that means. So stay tuned if you want to learn. This episode is particular for any founder. I mean, that Greg is one of the best in the business um, at helping founders be successful. Whether you're a marketplace founder or not, understanding the dynamics of building a business from scratch is one of his strengths and where he's so good at. And these tips and tricks are just invaluable because he's seen it, done that, been there, etc. So please stay tuned. You really love this one. And as always, like and subscribe if you want to, but more importantly, leave us a comment. I suspect after listening to Greg, you'll have lots of really cool things to 
dig into, ask questions about, or just comment on, please do. We want to hear from you. And if you want to see our show notes, we do have them at our website at jacobkubica.com. That's J-A-K-U-B-K-U-B-I-C-K-A.com. Please enjoy. Bon appetit. Enjoy. Greg, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So before we get into all the startup marketplace stuff, I thought we'd start the conversation with a question. Why should you keep a cup of change on your nightstand when you're in college? Oh, goodness. Well, that was because... That was because when when I was went to college, you used to have to put quarters into the into the washing machines and the dryers to be able to do a load of laundry. And so one of the little known things about my background is I wrote the the best-selling college revival book at that point of all time when I was in college. Whoa. And uh, one of the tips that I gave was have a basically a cup of quarters handy so you when you go down and do your laundry, you uh uh, you can get those done. Of course, these days with digital currency and all the other things, you, that, that is uh, one of many things that my the book written in 1991 didn't foresee that uh, that tip is sort of out of favor at the, uh, in the current time for sure. But thank you for bringing up college revival. Yes. So now yes. out of print. Yes. Now out of print. I, I, I saw it on eBay and I was like, maybe I should get one before. I think before you can still show. get. Yeah. It went into. Did seven editions, you know, many many wow. printings, and it was helped me to pay for for for, for graduate school. And I think it was one of the things that really started me on this entrepreneurial journey. Hmm. Um, and my love of, of of entrepreneurship is is you know, seeing a, 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 that there was a an opportunity in the market to write a book that hadn't been written, which is sort of a survival guide for students by students. And I think instead of doing what a lot of people do, which is say, well, that would be cool if a book gets written like that. I sort of said, well, I should write it. So I just went about writing it um, and uh, getting a bunch of my you know, friends and students to help with stories and, and editing and all kinds of great stuff. And we put out that book and it was successful. But um, hopefully that's the sign of of sort of why I love entrepreneurship so much is, mm-hmm. is you know, I just have so much respect for people that when they see a problem, and they say, I could solve that, you know, or I could do something about that. And that's the sign. I think that's really the spark of, of starting companies for sure. Yeah, that's amazing. How, how long did it take to actually write the manuscript, the first version of the book? I wrote most of it in my uh, sort of the, in my sophomore, you know, freshman and sophomore year and over the summer in between my freshman and sophomore year of college. And then, of course, I didn't know really what I was doing. So I just sent letters to the, the three largest publishing houses that I sort of found. They wasn't really online. Just I can't remember how I found the names. And one of them said, you know, we'll publish this. And and so they sent me a contract and I signed it. I in retrospect, it probably should have been uh you know more circumspect about it. But I I was just so excited to get a book published there. Yeah. And that was really a, a, a wonderful experience. And um, yeah, it, uh, it made me fall in love with, with, again, with, you know, starting, you know, starting something. The cool thing about books, I will say, as opposed to, I spent most of my life on the digital side, 
um, or the vast majority of my professional life, all of it really, you know, building, uh, helping to build and invest in and, and work with uh, digital companies. There's something incredibly fun about a tangible product mm-hmm. about going and actually being able to touch and feel something. And so I still have some copies of the, of, of the book. I actually wrote three, three books. So after the mm-hmm. college survival one, I wrote uh, two additional uh, books, one called high school survival and then one called, well, actually one and one, well, well I was, uh, I did a, a law degree and a business degree, but while in law school, I wrote one called law school survival. And then, and then I did one called high school survival as well. Um, yeah, super fun. Um, I haven't been writing any books lately, but uh, maybe, maybe at some point, uh, my wife says no more survival stuff. How about something in, in a more fictional sense? So maybe I'll Ooh. think of something. And yeah, maybe a go. science fiction novel. That'd be pretty cool. Right. I oh. love to write. Yeah. So that would be fun. Okay. And I did, I did see you wrote a lot for GeekWire as well. And, and <laughs> maybe this was over like four or five years. Right. And this is actually in service of within the startup industry. Was this specific to Seattle or kind of greater North America? Well, I had a blog. I still have one um, called Stark Raving BC. And then I did do some posts for GeekWire over time. Uh, yeah. But it was more about, trying to do, frankly, what you guys are doing, which is just providing advice and maybe some insights, things that uh, uh, that I thought uh, deserve to be written about. And then, um, and then I also wrote some opinion pieces. For example, uh, I wrote a, uh, when Seattle basically was banning Uber, I wrote a, I wrote a pretty uh, scathing piece of satire about how that, I didn't think that made sense. And so, things like that over time but but uh, i definitely my writing has has slowed as i've uh taken on more responsibilities with the with the studio and a venture mm-hmm. fund and doing other and hopefully starting these companies which is my true love when you say studio do you mean pioneer square labs i do i do yes okay uh, let's let's talk about that a little bit so what is pioneer square labs for the audience and could you share how it's different than madrona venture group yeah, so I started my career uh, as a venture, you know, in in Seattle as a venture capitalist, uh, one of the first initial, you know, managing directors of Madrona Venture Group. Before that, it was called Madrona Investment Group, but then when it became the Madrona Venture Group, I was one of the three initial managing directors, and um, that's a traditional venture capital fund. Um, while I was at Madrona, which was for twenty years, I also started something called Madrona. Venture Labs, which was a startup studio within Madrona. And and the idea was, could we take companies and systematically create some from scratch in addition to investing in them? Um, I had started uh, uh, a company called Rover.com. Jacob, you know that company well. It was just so much fun. And I had also helped uh, and was involved in some other incubated companies at Madrona, like Redfin and Z2 Live and some other great ones. And that just, it was just the experience of, of helping to kick off Rover. I was with the initial CEO and then hired someone much smarter and, and more capable than me, Aaron Easterly, to, to actually take it to the, the heights that it is today. But I just had so much fun in that early process that I, that I thought, gosh, I wonder if we could do this more systematically as opposed to on an ad hoc basis. And so helped to start Madrona Labs. I felt like within Madrona, though, it was always going to be of a smaller scale. And so 
that it needed to be its own sort of standalone with a whole bunch of other venture firms backing it in addition to Madrona. And so left to start Pioneer Square Labs. And Pioneer Square Labs is a startup studio. Uh, we build companies from, from scratch. So far, we've we've started uh, and spun out 27 venture-backed companies, so quite a few. And um, hopefully some of them will be some of the big successful companies of this of this world, not just this region. Mm-hmm. So that's the goal. You know, about half of, we kill over 90% of the ideas that we start. About half of the ideas uh, that we uh, come from us. I'm sort of one of those people that always has an idea I want to, <laughs> I can tell you about a new marketplace idea I'm thinking about at the moment, but always have an idea that uh, that I'm interested in seeing if we can turn into reality. And then they're also, so that's about 50% come from me or other people at Pioneer Square Labs. And then 50% come from the outside. Maybe an entrepreneur who we've worked with in the past will come to us and say, I'm thinking about this idea. Love to work with you on it. And, uh, and then we, we build that company together from scratch. So that, that's the other half of the ideas. But that's Pioneer Square Labs. We also have a joint studio with Forda, which was one of the lar- world's largest industrial technology companies. And we start companies with them. So far, we we started three companies with them and they've actually acquired one and, and, and already. And so that's been really fun too, to work with a large enterprise and help them innovate. How do you spell that? F-A-F-O-R-D-A? So Fortive, F-O-R-T-I-V-E. T-I-V-E. Okay. So it owns, I mean, you've heard of the companies that they own like Fluke and Tektronics and a mm-hmm. whole bunch of other uh, companies in their are holding companies. So they're a, a large uh, industrial manufacturing technology company actually based the headquarters is here in Everett and they're a fantastic, wow. very innovative uh, company. And it's been incredible to work with them. Super cool. Right. So the 50% that come, the ideas that come from within, it's an idea and you're going to need specific founders that maybe you go source then. Is that right? Yes. So the key to the whole startup studio process is finding that great co-founder to work with us to go realize a vision. And frankly, if we're great at finding those those founders uh, and partners, then these companies are going to be successful. And if we're not very good at it, then then it, it, this, this it, it won't work because um, you know, talent and is such an important part of the equation, the most important part of the equation. And so what we hope to do is, is find really great founders. And, and sometimes about half of the time, they've been serial entrepreneurs that have done a whole bunch of, of other companies and some very successful. And they're like, Hey, I, I, you guys can, can speed me up, can, can build something in, in, in weeks uh, or in a month or two that would take me a year to get off the ground. And so I want to work with you to help do that. Or you can take some risk out of the equation. I'm, I'm interested in that. Other times, it's first-time entrepreneurs that are like, "Hey, you, know, you um, have a great track record." Of the 27 companies that we've spun out, all 27 have gotten venture funding, so we have a, just a great track record of of being able to uh, to have ideas that are able to raise money and go and and uh, and hopefully do something um, you know special. Um, we also have venture funds, so some entrepreneurs will come to us and say, "I want to work with you, but..." I'm less interested in the studio model, even though you can do a lot of handholding, a lot of help. Um, I want a more traditional relationship. And in that case, we have these 
these venture funds that are traditional, or we have, you know, we have a venture fund that we're currently investing in. We had a, this is our second one. Um, and then we just can have a traditional relationship like any other venture uh, fund. And, and that would be, a, a, again, more of a classic, you know, we'll invest for a minority stake in the company versus helping, you know, helping to build it from the ground up. Mm. Um, we're helping in both cases, but, but definitely more hands-on if it's a studio company. You know, you touched on this a bit, but it's a quote that we we kind of pulled out of one of the things you said. You said you make decisions based not on what, but who, which kind of goes a little deeper than just talent is key. You know, what does it mean to make decisions based on the who? I, I like that a lot, but I just was, wanted to dig yeah. into there a little bit. There was another venture capitalist that said to me, and I've always loved this so much, but he uh, his name is Ted Dintersmith. Um, he's re- he's retired now from venture, but I, he said to me, he gave me this great way to think about it. And he said, "Who do you know, Greg, that if they came to you and was going to start a business, that you pull your checkbook out of your pocket, write a fifty thousand dollar check, hand it across the table, and say, now what's the idea?" In other words, you know, Jacob and Ty, who do you know that is so impressive that if they came to you? You would invest in them no matter what they were working on. Like those are the kinds of entrepreneurs that um, that you want to hopefully um, build companies with, bet your careers on, work you know, spend you know time in the trenches with. And so that's what I always ask myself: is is this someone that I would write a check to, regardless of what the idea was? Um, and I think that's really important. I think if you find you know one of the things having done this for a long time and invested, gosh, in, in now something like 200 companies or some crazy number if you include you know, some angel investments that I've made, um, is technology companies change radically. And if you have a really great team, uh, they adjust beautifully to those changes. And even if you have a great idea, if you have... Uh, a team that's unable to take advantage of, of of changes in the market, then then the company is, is unlikely to succeed. Take COVID for example. Um, what what a, a you know massive change that's brought about and radical dislocation. And my sense is is that as we look back, some of the teams that have been best able to to um, weather the storms where they may arise, but then also take advantage of some of the opportunities brought up about by this sort of dislocation will we'll end up doing the best. Yeah, do you have, do you have one that comes to mind when, when you share that? Oh gosh, so many companies. We tried to, you know, one of the things that we tried to do was when COVID happened was to build company. One of the neat things about a studio is that you can take advantage of, of changes in the marketplace. So when COVID hit, my reaction was in addition to, oh my goodness, like, should we be, you know, how should we be reacting to this sort of broadly from our portfolio standpoint, but also what are companies that we can build that can help solve problems in a time like this? So for example, one of the companies that we build is a company called Team Sense. And that was an idea that, uh, that one of my partners, TA McCann came up with, but the idea, and that, uh, we built in conjunction with Fortive, which is our joint studio, you know, corporate partner. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was the broader vision is workforce management. But the initial thing that we went to market was 
you remember when you're, if you're going back to factories, like you needed to, mm. to do those health attestations. Like, mm. are you, have, do you have a headache? When was the last time you, did you, do you have a fever? Do you have all these sorts of questions? And for all these workers coming in, if you remember early on, there weren't those sort of tools that, that enabled mm-hmm. that. And so we, we were one of the first to, and certainly the first sort of in that space to build uh, uh, a mobile-based solution for that, got into a bunch of customers that way. And now the interesting thing is, so that's just your wedge. So once you get in because of that opportunity, now you say, well, someone's not showing up to work. Okay, how who's going to replace that person? What's, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, what what kind of information are we giving to the other employees based on the fact that this person is missing work because they might have some, you know, they might have a contracted COVID. So so the, the, the opportunity then to build a workforce management solution with that as your wedge was something that we built. And, and that's a great company that frankly, you know, grew very fast and, and then and, and, and Ford have acquired it um, recently. So so that was, you know, within within a year of us. Um, you know, building it. So again, it's it's looking uh it's looking at a market and saying where are the opportunities and 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 can we build interesting and take advantage of, of these opportunities in addition to so play offense and defense at the mm-hmm. same time, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, tech companies can move quick and can change quick. And if you've got the right team in place, uh they, they do. Um <clears throat> You know, another thing that you've talked about a couple of times is systematically building uh, and growing companies from scratch. We're obviously focused here on uh, marketplaces at Marketplace yes. Mayhem, um, and you've gotten to do help start, help uh, uh, found you know people founders build both. Um, what do you think about? What do you do a little bit differently um, when you think about building a marketplace company from scratch? Or what have you thought about with like Rover, et cetera? I love marketplace businesses. I think they are tricky and and are a little bit different because one of the things that can be harder about marketplace type businesses is uh, that you have you know, multiple customer sets. So you've mm-hmm. got to acquire the supply, you've got to acquire the demand, uh, and then you've got to convert. And all those things are hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things when you're building a marketplace business is, is can you get one of those sides for free or inexpensively? Because if you have to pay a lot of money on both sides of a marketplace, that's a tough road. Um, mm-hmm. And so is there a way for you to get one side less expensively to scale that uh, you know, maybe more quickly? Um, usually that's the supply side. We can talk about some different businesses that that tends to be um, easier to scale. So in the case of Rover, the supply side was always early on a lot easier for us. Uh, we were able to acquire you know folks that would watch dogs very inexpensively initially through things like Craigslist and then ultimately just word of mouth. but the the supply side of that was was always, inexpensive. And so that's how we were able to scale across the country so quickly. So the early days of Rover, we were going to do city by city by city. So we started in Seattle, then we did Portland. And the idea was, okay, and then we'll do San Francisco and then we'll do, you know, mm-hmm. New York. And then, But we had so much success 
acquiring sitters early on that we were able to go nationwide right after launching Portland. So we never had to go through the expense of going city by city. And that was because we were able to acquire the sitter side uh, really inexpensively early on. We always had more difficulty uh, on the demand side. And so that was through SEO, SEM, you know, uh, different channel relationships. Um, And obviously that's been a very successful business, but it was made, the scaling of it so quickly was made possible because uh, early on we were able to get one side of the marketplace to sign up inexpensively. Anyway, there's so much to talk about, but but I'll let you guys drive. But that's one example of how when I'm looking at a marketplace, I'm trying to figure out you know, how much difficulty are we going to acquire on both sides? And then one thing that I would say is a real secret about marketplaces taught to me by Aaron Easterly and Brent Turner, um, because I didn't realize the importance of it until we really dug in, um, is that the that, that conversion and getting mm. that marketplace dynamic is really the, the, the crucial element of whether a marketplace will will work. So what I mean by that is if someone comes to your site and you're not Uber, so it's not automated, then being able to get them to convert effectively is is just crucial. Um, And that's something, for example, that Rover early days focused on maniacally Mm -hmm. was getting, if someone came to Rover and they raised their hand and said, I need a, someone to watch my dog because I'm going out of town. Early days, our conversion on that was still very low. (laughs) Even after someone had said, I'm interested, I I want this, Mm -hmm. I'm going to go have a meet and greet. We still converted at a a very low percentage. Aaron, from the earliest days, was very focused on getting that percentage higher and higher. And the beauty of that was if we had a much higher conversion rate than our competitors, then we could afford to spend more money to acquire customers. Right. And that's a little secret that I think people didn't get. So even though at that point, Dog Vacay, which was our main competitor, was in some ways having more success with getting people into the top, all their customers mm-hmm. were leaking out. Our funnel was a lot tighter. And so we were able to acquire more effectively <laughs> And that made all the difference because then over time, slowly but surely, you know, it was almost like the, the tortoise and the hare, if you will. And we yeah. just, we were just, you know, steadily being that pretty soon we could just, we could afford to participate in channels and do things they couldn't afford to do because our conversion was so much better. And there's so many things to conversion that we can talk about, but that was another crucial point. Anyway, I've been doing a lot of talking. I'll let you guys know. No, that's perfect. I, I mean, it seems like conversion is this mythical number a lot of times that is uh, uh, an amalgamation of dozens of factors. Um, I love that you brought it up right away. Uh, you know, to dig in a bit, maybe, you know, how, how I guess systematically how, how how do you coach founders to systematically think about that and start to figure out these types of problems and maybe you learned it from Aaron or someone like that but how did you start to tighten up the leakage there in your in that funnel um, and figure out that conversion well one is I think it's focus so um, 
with the other CEOs and marketplace businesses, I think it, I don't know why, just intuitively, I think people's attention, I don't, goes to the top of the funnel. I'm not sure mm-hmm. why, maybe it's human beings are more top of the funnel oriented, but this idea of how many people can we get to sign up for different, you know, mm-hmm. it just is a, I just think it's a more natural place to focus. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's, but if you sort of were saying, how should you allocate time? I tell the folks that I work with, you should spend 80% of your time trying to get that funnel fixed nice. and much less than 20% of your time at that top end of the funnel, because yeah, you can send a whole bunch of you, but until you sort of have started to optimize that funnel, th- those customers are going to leak out. So th- you're not going to get them. So, you, so once you get that, that, uh, that conversion starting to, to improve, I mean, that's a gift that's going to keep on giving for a long, long time. And mm-hmm. so one is just focus. And then focus is looking at all the little pieces of friction that you put into a process, the order of the process. You know, for Rover, a lot of it was about getting the right match. So are we getting, you show up to Rover and are the sitters that you're being shown the ones that are most likely going to lead to a conversion? Are they folks that respond, for example, uh, when you make a request within the first couple minutes? Are they folks that are in the right geographic location? Are they folks that have, importantly, a, you know, a lot of repeat business? Are they folks that that uh, um, uh, you know are less likely to to go around the system? I mean, there's so many sort mm-hmm, of factors mm-hmm. that you want to uh, put in there, but so much of it was about you know getting rid of all the simple little friction points as part of, and again, this is classic marketing, but you sort of go through each page and how much time are people spending in different pieces of the funnel and what's our messaging like? And, and are we doing, you know, do we have things ordered correctly? Are we doing a lot of testing? And then just from a value proposition or a product proposition, are we showing people uh, the right kinds of matches? So they're likely to convert and, you know, one of the things that that is true is that in more mature markets, uh, where our algorithms and our matching can be really great, like we're just going to have much better conversion than a newer market where we can't sort of show people uh, the kinds of of off the kinds of sitters, for example, in this case, that are going to be mo- more likely to convert. Obviously, in other marketplaces, it's it's different. But for example, June is a um, you know one of the companies that that uh, I've been privileged to 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 help to 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 start and and you know that's around helping match teens that are struggling with anxiety and depression and suicidal you know ideation and other kinds of of things like that with you know qualified therapists um that you know that can help them in addition to having uh you know a tech you know a technology enabled app that sort of helps the the, the process but if you think about it like um, that's obviously a quite a different market, but many of right. the same kinds of ideas that we've just talked about apply to to that marketplace as they do to Rover. Um, sure. You know, I'm involved in another one called Kavala, which is a marketplace for you know, in the, the long term care industry. Again, many of the ideas um, 
apply many of these same concepts apply again slightly uh, nuanced in different ways because mm-hmm. every marketplace is different but these same kinds of concepts are, are highly applicable at rover or any of these others did you get that did you figure out this conversion this top of the funnel or did it just work out differently where you were ever supply constrained well it depends uh uh supply constrained not most of the year during certain type certain times of the year like for example around uh uh certain holidays then you may have a supply problem where you couldn't do the kind of matching that you would like because your sitters all got taken or they were out of town and so one of the things that that rover tries to do is make sure that you know just like uh, is to make sure like during some of those those peak times that the supply is to go get additional supply or to try to uh, make sure that that the supply that may be latent in the system is sort of you know you go back to them and say hey you know it's, this holiday's coming up are you available hmm. and you try to get that supply to come back into the market but the answer is most of the time the vast vast majority of the year uh, uh, supply is not as much of an issue, but there are certain sort of peak times when you've got to try to figure out that supply issue. And now it'll be interesting now that we're coming back uh, from COVID and so many new people have gotten dogs. I mean, I guess every person I talk to has got a puppy <laughs> these days, just yeah. fantastic for Rover. Um, but I would imagine that the the number of folks that have dogs and and, and, the, and the demand, I think, should go up. And so we may have some supply issues as we sort of move forward that we haven't traditionally had, but that, that's what you call a high class problem. Hopefully that's yeah, right. Problem. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Interesting what you said a bit about right sizing the supply though. It sounds like, especially with Rover where you were matching, you know, kind of predicting or learning what the, the shopper, the, the, the sitter needed or the, the, the person who needed it and, and matching them with the right kind of sitter, um, a different kind of supply constraint, right? Like having, um, that mix be a little bit off. Um, you know, one of the things I want to talk about in the early, early back to your kind of comment around helping people start companies from scratch is this concept of picking a marketplace as a business model in general. Um, you know, obviously, once the Uber came out, the Uber of was, you know, became ridiculously popular. Um, but there are times where you wonder, could this be a SaaS company or a feature? Um, is there any, uh, as you guys are doing as a startup studio, is there any decisions or thoughts you go into as, should this be a marketplace or should this be another type of business model um, in your decision process? Of course. I think you always are asking, what's the right type of, of business model? I think that the core thing is to really focus on the customer. I mean, it's pretty, pretty, pretty simple. If you sort of go and say, "Hey, is this a customer problem? Mm-hmm. Is the customer willing to pay for a solution to this problem?" By the way, we kill over ninety percent of the ideas that we that we start, and the vast majority of the kills are not because the ideas aren't good. All of them are a kernel of a good idea. It's that we couldn't. The, the unit economics don't work or that we can't, mm. it's not that you're not solving a problem. It's just you're not solving a problem. People are willing to pay you money to solve, or you can't acquire customers 
inexpensively oh. enough. So they may be willing to, to pay for it, but they're not willing to pay enough to, for it to be a, a business. And so as you're looking at a, any kind of, of market or solution, yeah, you're trying to, to put the right business model that's going to be most attractive for that particular customer. And if it's just more of a subscription SaaS type of solution, when you could say, hey, like, is the, should, should there be something at Rover where you could buy um, a year subscription? So you can always have, you know, a Rover sitter when you need it. Well, I think that makes less sense from a customer standpoint because you don't know. I assume, Ty, that you're, you haven't made your entire travel schedule for the year. So you're less likely to say, oh, gosh, you know, I'm going to sign up for a. So in, in the case of Rover, as we talked about, makes more sense to have it be, uh, you know, a, a more traditional marketplace that you sort of go in and, and, and grab a sitter when you need one. Um, other markets um, where, like, say, a, a typical piece of software that you're using on a regular basis, then a SaaS model is going to be more applicable. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we started a, a company uh, with a fantastic entrepreneur named Xiao Wang in the, in the immigration space. Again, that's one that's that's where people come in, they need a spousal visa, then they're going to want to pay for that spousal visa at that time. Now, there may be a subscription component sort of as you think about, okay, hey, I want updates or I need, I want ultimately to have, I'm a new to this country, so I want to have almost like a Costco-like type of subscription to different services and so forth. But initially, the the the, the sale is going to be more around the lines of saying, hey, I need this particular visa application. And so you're just trying to meet the customer where they are with the value proposition that's going to make the most sense uh, uh, for, for that customer. And usually, if you focus on what the customer wants, that's going to be the winning uh, approach. I think if you try to force the customer to pay you in a way that he or she isn't interested in, I think that's where you run into problems. Hey, hey, wasn't that awesome? Hope you're enjoying it so far. Yeah, and you better get ready because we didn't end the conversation there. So stay tuned for part two of this striking conversation. More mayhem coming. (laughs) 